All right, so this morning, um, <clears throat> I want to jump right in uh, because I, my heart's very stirred, and I just kind of want to jump right into the to continue the series we're on called New Normal. So we're living in strange times, and uh, that's what we've been talking about in this series. What is the new normal? And, and here's what we've said in the series so far. Change and crisis calls us to hear deeper cries that we haven't heard before. Deeper cries from God calling us toward Him. And as we respond to those cries, God does a work of transforming our thinking from within. That's what we've talked about in the, in the first two weeks. And so as God continues to transform us, we've equated it to the journey that the, the children of Israel took in the Old Testament when they moved from slavery to the promised land. And when you move from slavery to the promised land, you notice it wasn't one step. Step one, slavery. Step two, wilderness. Step three, promised land. It wasn't one step away from where they were. It was many steps away because what God was actually doing in the process is he was preparing his people to live in the promised land. He couldn't just take them in the shape they were in and air, airdrop them over in the promised land and then say, great, now, now live in this new land. You're ready. He had to take them through a journey to prepare them. Here's what I'm saying to you. I think the question we've been asking this series is, what's God doing right now? Here's what I believe God's doing right now. Tired as we are, as crazy as it is, as chaotic as everything is, I've been through a lot of crises in my life, and I learned God doesn't take a break during crisis. God doesn't just say, hey, when this is over, we'll meet again. God actually works in crisis and sometimes more powerfully than he does outside of crisis. And so what God's doing right now, I believe, is he's preparing us for whatever the new normal is going to be whenever, whenever that happens. You know, who, who knows? I don't know. I don't claim to know that. But I do believe that God is working, he's moving, he's changing, he's preparing. And then uh, Pastor Mark, such an excellent message last week, such a great message. He talked about in the journey, we often hit delays. And those delays sometimes are about God's work of development in us to prepare us to be the people of God we need to be to inherit the, the new place that he's taking us to. Now, we're not where we were, and we're not where we're going, but we're somewhere in between, and that's where we are today. You've probably caught some of the headlines that I've caught. We are living in a time of change and chaos like I've never seen in my lifetime, and, and most of you probably haven't either. Cities are burning. Politics is raging. Things are in chaos. People in our nation are literally physically dying senselessly. I mean, this is a time of, of abject crisis. It, 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 is, it is unbelievable what we're seeing. And I wonder if we almost see so much of it, we don't become numb to it. The sports world is in chaos. The education world, we've got a lot of teachers and educators and administrators in our church, and certainly a lot of parents with kids, education is in turmoil. The business world is shifting right now. 
I don't know if you caught Nike and Walmart are both laying off a lot of employees so they can redivert their resources toward online business and online sales. Google and Facebook have announced that they'll allow all their employees to work from home until next summer. What do you think the net effect is of tens of thousands of people working from home? I, I don't know, but it's something. And what about the church? What, what effect has all this had on the church? I just caught these thoughts uh, this week from George Barna, who is the leading Christian statistician in America. Here's what he says. Since the pandemic, one in three Christians has stopped attending all forms of church. 33% of all practicing Christians in America have stopped attending all forms of church. He went on to say that because of the shifting, because of the crisis, because of the economic realities, he thinks that in the next 18 months, 20% of all churches in America will close. Now let me put a number on that for you. That's about 80,000 churches. Do you think if 80,000 churches in America close, that it'll matter? Do you think that, that if churches, if, if, the, if, the, if the witness of the gospel, if the light of God just starts to flicker out in communities all over America, do you think that'll bring change? And not the kind of change that's needed. I, I've had a few pastor friends who've commented to me um, and messaged me privately. They've been following this series. And, and, I, and I think all of us are kind of in the same boat. We're just kind of listening to see what's out there because none of us really know what to do. <laughs> none of us really know what to do. Well, I, I didn't go to pandemic school. You know, I didn't get that class in Theology 101, Pandemic 201. I didn't, I didn't get that. Nobody really knows what to do. Dan Ryland, who's kind of like a pastor to pastors, he recently said this, today's pastors are leading through a fog bank while walking across a minefield. It's tough to be a leader in any field today, in any field. And in the spiritual environment, it's also tough to be a leader because things are shifting. Things are moving. The stakes are high. We, we live in urgent times. The consequences are eternal. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to accelerate the conversation, okay? I want to have a conversation with you that I wouldn't normally have with you. So, so what I'm saying to you is we can't today afford to be onlookers. We can't afford to be rubberneckers or observers or attenders or cultural Christians or spiritual hobbyists. Like the stakes are high. And so I'm, I'm coming to you in a different in a different tone, with a different spirit, because of, the, because of the moment that we live in, I want to accelerate the conversation. We're not going to be prepared for what God is doing if we take on that passive status. So what, what, what do we need to talk about this morning? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pretend this morning, I'm going to pretend, that today we are at a, um, a, uh, a conference, Okay? And I'm going to pretend today that I'm talking to pastors and Christian leaders. That's what I'm going to pretend. 
And, and would you pretend? Would you just kind of put your hat on and say, okay, I want to try to listen to this and hear this as if I were a pastor or a Christian leader who had responsibility for the outcome of my environment spiritually. Like, I'm going to try to hear it that way, okay? And, and that's how I'm going to bring it to you this morning. So what I'm asking you is, will you just maybe hear through a different lens? And look, maybe you're, maybe you're watching online this morning, maybe you're here today and you're new, and you say, listen, I'm, I, this is my first time at this church, or um, I, I'm not even sure where I stand with God. Hey, I want you to know something. We are so thrilled that you're here. We're so glad that you're with us today. Maybe God will use this to search something inside your heart. And I think the way we end the service this morning, there'll be plenty of opportunity for that. So I'm glad you're here, and I think there's absolutely a place for you in this conversation. So I, I want to share with you what I sense, okay? We may be in the moment of greatest change in our lifetime, and we've got two choices. We can either try to go back to what we had and actually become a worse version of what we were. Or we can allow the Holy Spirit to birth something inside of us new for a new time. And that's exactly where the children of Israel were. They weren't where they, were, they, where they had been. They weren't where they were going, but they were in the middle. So they had been in slavery 430 years. Slavery was normal. And they were tempted to reach back for what they had, not because it was good, but because it was familiar. And so that's what they were tempted to do. They were on a journey to the promised land, and as we all do when we journey with God, we, we hit several crossroads, okay? And so they hit crossroads. We hit crossroads. They had been delivered by God from slavery. They had been delivered from Pharaoh's attempt to recapture them. They had endured hardship in the wilderness, walking with one million of their closest friends. You think it's crowded, <laughs> Try walking through the woods. Try go backpacking with your million of your closest friends. That's what they had. It'll be busy around the campsite, I promise you. It's been said it only took one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And that's what the process is in the journey. It's preparation to become the people that God wants us to be. So the book of Numbers has three uh, divisions, okay? That's what we're going to look at, Numbers 11. The first part of the book of Numbers is about the first generation, okay? And they didn't, they didn't make it. The, and that's just a very, very short time in the 40 years. The middle part of Numbers, which is where we'll start, covers over 38 years of the 40 years. And then the very end of the book of Numbers, we see the new generation that God has brought out of this process, and they're standing at the doorway of the promised land about ready to go in. So we want to back up to this middle again, kind of where we've been talking about, and what's happening in the transition is God is strengthening this broken down um, tribe of ex-slaves, and he's turning them into an influential nation of people who are ready to walk into what God has prepared for them. And that's what he wants to do for us. Now, in this time, 
God also cared for them. He didn't just prepare them. He didn't just develop them. He, he, he cared for them. He gave them uh, a cloud by day to follow and a fire by night. He brought water out of a rock in the desert when they had nothing to drink. He allowed this bread called manna to drop from the sky every night, and they'd go out every morning. They'd pick it up, and they'd eat it. He fed them. He gave them shoes that would never wear out. They could just walk and walk and walk. Very, very practical, very helpful in the wilderness. But the people got frustrated. So look at Numbers 11, verse 4, and we begin to see the people's frustration. The rabble with them, that's the first sign you're in trouble. you got rabble with you. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We're tired of this bread. We're tired of manna. We're carnivores over here. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Here they're going back. It's better to be a slave. Also the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but manna. How many of you know when you start messing with people's food, they get fussy? Come on. Hey, in the South, right? You mess with a Southerner's food, you might as well get ready to fight. You, you can't just tamper around with what people eat and expect everything to go okay. But there's this powerful little nuance concept that dictates all of this, and it's called preference. Preference. You and I have preferences. It's what determines what restaurant makes it and what restaurant doesn't make it. It determines what makes it on the menu of a restaurant and what doesn't make it on the menu of a restaurant. You know there's preferences. If you go out and eat with a group, by the time lunch is over, you'll have 17 different sauces on the table. Why? Because everybody's got a preference. They prefer things. We got preferences. There's food that I prefer. How about, how about you? How many of you like olives? What is wrong with you? I don't know why anybody would eat an olive. That's the nastiest thing I've ever seen. What about mushrooms? If you know where they grow, they're terrible. What about seafood? Anybody like seafood? Yes. Who doesn't like seafood? I, I, I don't know what's wrong with you. I'm just telling you. Most of the planet's water. That's where the good stuff is. Hey, if you're online, why don't you just jump on and throw in the comment section the weirdest food that you like. be fun to see. Uh, uh, we actually had um, a little controversy on Facebook in our church. And uh, some of you may didn't catch it, but one of our pastors, Pastor Amber, where's Pastor Amber? Yes, Pastor Amber. So I didn't comment. I wasn't feeling good. But she put on Facebook, what's the deal, or is it a deal, to have cheddar cheese on apple pie? How many of you think that's a deal? How many of you have heard of that? Oh, like six. Okay, so maybe, maybe it was a good thing. On apple pie, you, by the way, apple pie is not an American invention. It's British, and the British put cheese on it first. And it is a thing, Amber. It really is a thing. And it's, Have you tried it? It's not, no, it's not that bad. It's really not that bad. But here's the thing. It's a preference. If you don't think people have preferences, why don't you just get a group together and say, hey, I'm ordering lunch, we're ordering one type of food, and everybody's got to eat it. You know what you'll get? But I don't like that. I don't like that. Preference. It's called preference. Preference was the problem in Numbers 11. All right, so let's back up for a minute, okay? We've established preference. 
Now let's back up and look at the big picture. What was the big picture? The big picture was God gave the people a promise. I will take you to the promised land. No disagreement. The people were happy with that. Yay, take us to the promised land. We want to go to the promised land. We love the promised land. No disagreement. But God, I've got a question. I don't like how you're doing it. I don't like the method. I don't disagree with your goal. I don't disagree with the end. I just don't like the method you're using to get us there. When you're on a journey with God, there's going to come a point where you don't like the method he uses. And it may not be because the method's good or bad. It just might not be your preference. It might not be your preference. Now Now here we go. So their preference was more important than God's promise. Now listen, I don't have any points for you today. I don't even have any thoughts for you today. I have one question. Will you give up your preference for God's promise? That's it. That's what I came to say today. Will you give up your preference for God's promise? Because when you're in transition, let me tell you something, when you're in transition, when you're in crisis, when God's bringing something new about, you and I are so tempted to reach back to the familiar because it's what we prefer. And look, nobody's going to disagree. Every Christian thinks every lost person ought to get saved. Nobody's going to disagree with that. Where we're going to disagree is how. How's that going to happen? What methods God's going to use to bring people to faith? I know the answer. The one he used with me because I prefer it. Because it's what worked with me. Everybody's got to get saved the way I got saved. You know, I I had this problem as a young Christian. Um, My family was lower middle income and I was called to ministry and wanted to go to college, and I didn't have the money to go to college, so I stayed home and worked for a year. I worked three jobs, saved as much money as I could save, um, and, and, and I applied for all the financial stuff you're supposed to be able to get. And here's what they told me. Your parents qualify. In other words, your parents are poor enough for you to get aid. However, you made too much money last year. I'm like, I'm 18. <laughs> I thought you wanted me to do my part and not just suck off the government, so that's what I was trying to do, and now you're punishing me for it. That was frustrating. That was heartbreaking. I had friends in my neighborhood who had gotten full scholarships because of their economic reality who who, uh, uh, had better income in their family than we did. Now, that frustrated me. And after hitting wall after wall after wall with it, I finally got to college over a year later. I got there and I kept hitting these financial walls. And you know what? One day I remember just complaining about it, getting so mad to God about it, and just going, God, why, why do you let this injustice happen? Why do you? I mean, I'm following you. I'm here, to, I'm here because I'm called. I didn't even want to go to college. And I remember the Holy Spirit spoke to me, not, not loud, not angry but clear. And he said, what difference does it make to you how I meet your need? 
I am your source. The government's not your source. The scholarship's not your source. I am your source. And you know what? He met every need. But that cut my heart. You know why? I didn't disagree with the goal. I had a different preference. I preferred the scales to be balanced a little bit more equally. I preferred things to be slanted in my favor. I wanted to be a little more in control about how things happened. There was a a man in our church in Mississippi who'd suffered a, a very difficult marriage. It was pushed to the brink of divorce. Because the the couple had lost a child, tragically lost a child. It was terrible. And and, and here's what happened. I saw they came into our church and they had been to our church for a while. And I didn't know their story, and I got to know their story. And um and I like you would watch them during worship service, and they they really were kind of stoic. No, no real response, you know. We'd have a prayer time. You know, we'd invite them to prayer. And uh, they'd never come for it. Never came for prayer one time. And so I thought, well, I don't, I can't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on inside, you know. And one day I ran into him in the foyer. And he leaned over a counter and sat and talked to me for a few minutes. And I, I, by that point, I had known a lot of their story. And he looked at me and he said... He just began to talk about all the things that God was doing in his life, in his marriage, in his home, in his family. And he just starts crying. And as I listened to his voice and I watched his tears and I heard what was going on in his life, I said, my goodness, God is healing this man. Like God is healing him and changing him and things are happening inside his life that there's no way to explain other than the mercy and grace and power of God. I mean, this is revolutionary kind of stuff. He's, he's healing. He's going to be okay. And by the way, when, when we left years later, they were still there together with their four daughters. And you know, you know why that kind of messed my brain up? Let me tell you why. Because when I came into faith, I came through a church um, culture that said, if you don't come to the altar and get prayed for, God's not really working in your life. That's what it said. Didn't mean to say it, but it said it. And as a young pastor, I guess that was still in my brain somewhere. And I, it, it threw me off. I thought, how, how I've never seen him respond one time in a service. I've never seen him come for prayer one time. How could God be in that? It, I mean, when you, I say it out loud, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. What do you mean, how could God? How could God not? God can do anything. God can respond to anybody, anywhere, anytime. And, and so, look, by the way, next month, we're bringing our prayer team back. And let me tell you why. We're not bringing our prayer team back because we think because our church has a prayer team, we're more spiritual than churches that don't have a prayer team. All right? We're not bringing our prayer team back because it's some litmus test. If you come for prayer one day, you're more spiritual than all the people that don't come for prayer. That's not why we're doing it. Let me tell you why we're doing it. We're bringing the prayer team back because we have a core belief at our church that people need to meet God. And when you meet God, things in your life change. And prayer is one of the most powerful ways that you and I can meet God. So it's not a hoop. It's not a test. It's an invitation. Come, come and meet him. The door's open. 
So we're working on how to do that safely. I had the same conversation. We're talking about methods, okay? Look, I'm at the point, I wish our building was made a little different. I wish we could do things a little different to make it more accessible. We talked about it. How do we do it? Do you stand in the back, stand in the front, stand on your head, do guard wheels, stand in another room? I don't think it matters. I think what matters is you meet God. Like, that's what matters. Like, we got to let go of this is the way it ought to happen, that's the order it ought to happen, and that's what it looks like. You know why? Here's why. Because we all have preferences, but we don't all know it. And what we got to get in is the promise, not the preference. Because things are changing, and we're going to get left behind And what God wants to do if we're going to lock in on the preference and say, it's got to be like this or it's not God. I believe God's going to do some things in ways you and I have never seen in our lifetime, and we won't even notice it if we're holding on, we have a death lock on the preference. So I, I remember having this conversation. Let me just push it a little harder, okay, in case that wasn't enough. I remember having this conversation after Katrina. Our church happened to be about 50 minutes from Brownsville when the Brownsville revival started. And uh, I remember uh, after Katrina, we had people from everywhere. And there was a guy in the cafeteria there, and we were talking about Brownsville. And I said, you know, I guess one of the things we learned from Brownsville is that method doesn't work anymore. And he looked at me and he said, what do, you, what do you mean? He said, that wasn't a method, that was the Holy Spirit. And I said, no, it wasn't. What do you, what do you mean? And, and as I engaged with him for a minute, I thought, why do I even, why do I, even, I don't even know this guy. Why am I having this conversation with him? Do you know what happened to Brownsville? It was great for a while, and then it collapsed from inside and nearly went bankrupt. Like that revival nearly wrecked that church. And it's only a shell of what it once was. So what do I mean by method? What I mean by method is, there, here's the method. The method is, let's get as many people as we can in one room at one time, worshiping and praying together as many nights in a row as we can. That's a method. It's not the, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit didn't use it. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit wasn't present. I have friends whose lives were changed there. I'm not saying that. God will use it. You know why? Because God loves people. He's not going to stop you meeting people. But it was a way of doing church. It's not the only way. How do I know? How on earth, please tell me, has the church in China grown for generations? And they haven't even been able to do Brownsville revival type things. Because the church has a lot of methods. And the Holy Spirit's going to use the one that works best. You know why? Because he loves people that much. So what I'm saying is, if that's your preference, you might be about ready to miss the promise. Because there's a promise that God has that the church is the hope of the world. In any in every form. And we've got to allow him to stir us to see something fresh and to see something new because the whole world is shifting. The whole world is changing. The whole world is moving. Now, I know this seems a little weird. We may say, you know, methods really don't matter that much. Well, let me tell you what methods don't have. 
Methods have no power. There's no power in a method. No method has the ability to change anybody's life. It never has and it never will. But let me tell you what a method does have. A method gives people access to the power of God to change their life. You know what one of our methods is? We meet here at Sunday morning at 1030. That's one of our methods. You don't think that's a method? Come on Saturday by yourself and see if you stand here and see lives changed. Why? Because it's, it's, it's a method. It's when we meet. So methods do matter. We get stuck because we can't change when God starts to develop us and try to build us in, up into a nation that become, can become a powerhouse to impact a culture and a nation. We get caught with our hand in the cookie jar going, but I want meat. I want it the way it was. I like it. That's how I got saved. I'm emotionally connected to that. And God is saying, I want you to get anchored in the promise, not just the preference. We can't embrace where God's taking us because we prefer where he brought us from. I don't have any idea what the future is, but I am 100% certain it's not the past. So what did God tell, what did God tell the people when they complained about we want meat? Here's what he said, Numbers 11. You will not eat it for just one day. So here's what he's saying. I've heard, I've heard your complaint, and I'm actually, I actually have an answer. <laughs> you want quail, I'm going to give you quail. I'm going to give you meat. That's what they were asking for. But he said, you're not going to eat it for one day or two days or five days or ten or twenty days, but you're going to eat it for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you've rejected the Lord who's among you and you've wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Everybody has a story of someone you know who was caught smoking as a teenager and some person in their life said, okay, you want to smoke? Smoke the whole pack. How many of you got, you know that story, right? Everybody's got that. This is basically what God's saying. You want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you meat until it comes out your nose. I'll give you meat until it comes out your nose until you learn to love the promise more than the preference. Because God's promise was, I will take you into a land flowing with milk and honey. And I will give you an inheritance. And I will make you a mighty nation. But God says, I've got to fool with your preferences a little bit in order to know that I actually have your heart. Because sometimes we can have both, sometimes we can't have both. So what is God saying to them? If you want your preference more than my promise, I'll give it to you until you learn to depend on me. Until you're not depending on your feelings, you're not depending on your emotions, you're not depending on your memories, you're not depending on what I did yesterday or last year or in grandma's time. Until you learn to depend on me. This is interesting because I think God actually sometimes turns us over to our preference. I remember uh, several years ago when we lived in another state, uh, uh, an ordained pastor came to me and said, uh, there's a certain expression that we don't have in our church here at all. And I said, well, we actually do have it some, but we didn't have it enough for him. And so he said, uh, my and my family are going to go to another church because this, we, want this, we think this expression needs to be more present more often, and we don't think you want that here. And I said, well, I assure you I do. 
but we, we couldn't come to agreement. So we went to the, so here's what he did. Watch. Our church was reaching people, but he left our church and went to another church that was struggling and dying, but they had the expression that he wanted. And he sat in it as it shrunk and died, and it's nearly dwindled away to nothing. The promise is I will send you into all the world to make disciples and teaching people to obey everything that I've commanded. That's the promise. That's the commission. The preference is I want it the way it was sometime when I had it. And if you don't let go of the preference, you're not going to get the promise. All right. This is what happens when I'm homesick for a week. We, I've, I've, I've talked to you too long today, but I do want to end here, okay? I've lived through some major shifts in my life. It's too long of a story to tell, but in high school, there was a dramatic shift in my local school that was... It ended up, uh, years later, closing the school and closing the church. That's how big a deal it was, big. But let me tell you what, and then, and then I lived through Hurricane Katrina. Okay? And let me tell you what I see in crisis. I've seen it twice now in my life, and we're going to see it now. I guarantee it. In crisis, people rise that you don't expect to rise. And I, I actually think I was one of those. I don't think anybody would have looked at my life before that time and said, because I was just kind of floating along as a teenager. And I don't think anybody would have looked at me and said, I think he's going to rise. But I did rise. Because God, by God's grace, because God called and I somehow heard him and somehow listened and somehow responded. And in Katrina, we saw people rise that I didn't expect to rise. Because somehow they heard the stirring of the Holy Spirit in their heart. And after that was over, we weren't even nearly the same church that we were before. We were a totally different church. And, and listen to me, okay? Just look at me for a minute. Online, zero in with me for a minute. Some of you are going to rise. There's potential in you locked away that hasn't been tapped. But somehow, for some reason, in a crisis, you're going to hear the Holy Spirit call you in a way you've never heard Him call you. And you're going to rise. And it's going to be an incredible moment. It's going to be, this is our moment. This is our time. This is the time God does his best work. And some of you are going to rise. Some of you are going to stand up. Some of you are going to hear the call. Tired as you are, weak as you are, frustrated as you are, overwhelmed as you are. You don't need energy. You don't need strength. You don't need space. All you need is an intention to say, God, I hear you and I'm trying. I reach out. I reach out to you with everything I got. It might only be that much. But you know, God can take a little widow's might and he can meet the whole need with it. He can take a little boy's lunch and make it, make it meet every need. You don't have to worry about how much do you have. You just need to worry about who's got what you have. You or God. So just, just rise. In Jesus' name, rise. Our nation is in chaos and it's in turmoil and last year's preferences are not going to get it and the way things used to be aren't going to get it and cultural Christianity is not going to get it. 
We need a fresh openness to God, and we need a soft heart that's flexible and allows us to move fluidly. Remember that series we did the last couple summers, Viral? Man, that's what happened to the church. It just kept adjusting and moving and establishing itself into new places and new territories. So, so this morning, I want to ask you to stand with me. If you're online, I just, just if you want to stand or you just want to um, kind of find a place you can get set. Man, we're going to sing one more song, and to be honest with you, the song is the prayer. It's called Waymaker. It's called Waymaker. God is a Waymaker. What I want to ask you to do today is I want to ask you to cry out. I want to ask you to respond. I want to ask you to pray. I want to ask you to turn this song into a prayer. I want to ask you to turn the character of God into a prayer. God, make a way. Lord, we need a miracle. Lord, we need miracles. God, we need you to make a way. We need you to part waters and let us walk on dry land. We're going into absolute chaos and craziness. And God, we ask you to make a way where there seems to be no way because you've done it again and again and again and again. As we sing this song, I just want to ask you, here's what I want you to do. Man, as we begin to sing this song, I want you to rise. If you sense in your heart the Holy Spirit's calling you, I just want you to... Man, last week when I was at home in my living room and we sang that song, God, uh, Graves to Guards, man, I was walking behind my couch with my hands lifted up saying, Jesus, do it. God, do it. We need you to do it. We need you to move us from graves to guards. So if you're at home, man, you can do that. You just lift your hands up in your living room. Jordan, you're going to sing this song. Come here, man. Jordan's going to sing this song. Jordan, you remember when we were in Honduras and you sang at that church and something that came out of your soul I'd never seen before? Man, it, it's your time to rise. It's your time to rise, Jordan. Man, when you sing this song, I want you to pour out of your soul. I want it to be your prayer. God, make a way. God, make a way. I don't know the future. I don't know my next step. But God, make a way today. God, make a way today. God, I want you to make a way today. You sing it because it's happening inside you. You sing it because it's the work of God inside you. Come on and let's sing together this morning.